What I'm really worried about is that people attain positions not due to merit. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the crisis of legitimacy in our institutions, which is wholesale right now on all yes, sides yes. of the political aisle. I'm worried about the fact that we do not have a gold standard and imprimatur of knowledge because our peer reviewed process has been corrupted. But I'm really, really worried about the the fact that people will get jobs not based upon merit, but based upon exogenous characteristics. And if you do that long enough, not only will there be a lack of trust in institutions, but the lack of trust in institutions will be because the institutions are not worth trusting. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Chris Martinson, and today's episode is going to be about moral courage and personal integrity. And it's about the most fundamental of all freedoms and the bedrock of higher education, the right and the obligation to ask questions. Dr. Peter Bogosian recently resigned from his position as an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. Peter has a teaching pedigree spanning more than 25 years, 30,000 students, in prisons, hospitals, public, private schools, seminaries, colleges, universities, Fortune 100 companies, small businesses. He gave his all to teaching the next generations, and now he's given up that role, and we're going to find out why and what it means. Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, it's really, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, You resigned recently. Can you just go through the first, say, three paragraphs of your resignation letter for us? Oh, sure. You want me to read that? Yeah. uh, It just, it was so beautifully written. I want to start there. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Dear Provost Susan Jeffords, I'm writing to you today to resign as Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Portland State University. Over the last decade, It has been my privilege to teach at the university. My specialties are critical thinking, ethics, and the Socratic method, and I teach classes like science and pseudoscience and the philosophy of education. But in addition to exploring classic philosophers and traditional texts, I've invited a wide range of guest lecturers to address my classes, from flat earthers earthers to Christian apologists to global climate skeptics to Occupy Wall Street advocates. I am proud of my work. I invited those speakers not because I agreed with their worldviews, but primarily because I didn't. From those messy and difficult conversations, I've seen the best of what our students can achieve, questioning beliefs or respecting believers, staying even-tempered in challenging circumstances, and even changing minds. That's the first three paragraphs. Thank you. I mean, it's just the, the whole thing is exquisitely written. We'll go through some other pieces, I hope. But, but I love this idea that you were bringing people in primarily because you didn't agree with them. Why was that? I, I just want to say, did, did, you, did you read the, somebody sent, a, published, a Christian apologist, and, and as you know, I'm an atheist, uh, submitted an absolutely lovely piece to the Oregonian. It's just one paragraph. May I please read that? Absolutely. Yeah, bring it. I am a philosophy professor at George Fox University. Almost a decade ago, I was researching a book exploring the benefits of religious faith and its role in science, political reform, and parenting, 
Peter Bogosian, philosophy professor at Portland State University, disagreed with the main theses. Peter, an atheist, calls faith, quote, a cognitive sickness, unquote. Nevertheless, he invited me in 2012 to address his very popular atheism course at PSU. The ensuing discussion with his students improved my work, and two years later, I published Why Faith is a Virtue. Dr. Bogosian treated me with respect, despite our strong philosophical disagreements. In my experience, Peter's behavior is an example of what liberal education ought to be. And so- Wow, that's amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, a, it, it, it's amazing. And it, and it comports very strongly with my own worldview, which is that right. yep. um, the only times, Pete, I'm aware of learning is when I'm uncomfortable. Correct. Right. So, so if I don't understand a math theorem, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I struggle. It doesn't work. I go to sleep for a few days. It's a little easier and eventually I'll get it or something like that. But, but it's always learning is truly always an uncomfortable process for me. And, uh, so your experience was you're bringing in these outer out views, maybe let me just project maybe because particularly, especially because they're uncomfortable. Yeah, and because I don't agree with them, and it's really important, and this idea has a pedigree in literature, John Stuart Mill talks about it, that people have to hear not just the other side of the argument, but people who agree with the argument, people who believe those arguments. And I think that our students deserve the right to be taught by a true intellectual diversity of opinion. And I've, I've gone on, unfortunately, none of the liberal shows, uh, anything left of center hasn't invited me on. And I've, I'm, I want to have conversations with the people on the left. I actually consider myself a, a liberal. I want to have those conversations, but people are simply unwilling to have it. The student newspaper didn't write, write about the story. It's been written about an astonishing number of times right now. And I think that there, there is kind of a closure in these media ecosystems, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. And that closure in the media ecosystems are reflected of what's happening in the universities. Uh, one of the questions I've asked my conservative friends with whom I've spoken is, do you, do you think that there should be a Marxist in an economics department? And in very, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a trick question, but you, you have to say yes to that or you become the thing that you hate, right? Like mm -hmm. Antifa, the, the, the street thugs. And so every single person I, I've asked that question, I don't even know how many times, all the conservatives I've asked that, they've all said, yes, I think there should be. And there should be a Marxist, a believing Marxist in an economics department, just as there should be a behaviorist in a psychology department, a Freudian, a Jungian, what have you. But that's what our students need. They need the best representatives of a very diverse range of views. We need to equip them with the tools to make better decisions, analyze arguments, to speak back, to question ideas while being gentle with people. That's what an education should be, and that's what they're losing. Didn't Sun Tzu say, never learn your enemy, ever? <laughs> yeah, I think he said exactly the opposite, yes. Um, we, 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 we've made brittle, we've made a, a whole generation of people brittle, they crumble. They crumble when they're faced with ideas that they they just don't know how to deal with. You know, I was thinking in my debate, I just had a debate with Andrew Doyle. Um, Sticks and stones may, may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So that, when I grew up, I'm, I'm 55, we were taught that, which is true, you can't choose what other people say to you. They're just going to be nasty, cruel people in the world. That's just a feature of it. And what you can change is your response to those things. And we've made the shift from 
how do I respond to going to authority to try to shut down other people, to censor speech, to political correctness? And the consequence of that in aggregate is that people have become more fragile. What right? was your philosophy of teaching? How did you, how did you go about it? Uh, it was broadly the Socratic method. And so I would throw out uh, questions, often questions that contradicted uh, some, no one's ever asked me that question, by the way. <laughs> Tens of, I don't even know how many, no one's ever asked me that. But um, I would try to find a, a, a common belief or something that um, was held based upon a text or some philosophical material that we just wrote. I'd engage students in it, and then I'd take the other side of the argument and push back on what, no matter what people said, and I would try to push back on it with the idea of honing their thinking, and it was all Socratically based, 100% of it. And, and mm -hmm. there's just no question, and the literature is pretty clear about this, and this is my, my primary area of publication as well, that when, what does it mean to think clearly and critically uh, and, and if you look at that, it's so interesting to me, we don't teach it because you, it's not it, it's difficult to grade, but critical thinking at core is the position, the possession of certain attitudinal dispositions. And key among those is that you're willing to revise your beliefs. And so I would often dem demonstrate in class, I would change my mind on the spot. In fact, in How to Have Impossible Conversations, we write that. Just change your mind. You know what? I thought about it. I'm wrong. I see to the better argument. And that is a kind of modeling behavior that helps students to revise their beliefs. The, the reason people don't do it, it's not, it's not a conspiracy or anything. It's just impossible to test that, right? So, so it has to be modeled for students. Agreed, agreed. So what kind of, um, I don't know what the process is at PSU, but what kind of reviews or um, rankings did you get from your students? They're outstanding. In fact, I can send them to you. I think they're among the best in the college. And the only, I don't say that to brag. I say that descriptively. And the only reason that I knew that is because I, I came up for a review and I had to aggregate those. I think 95% of my students uh, would take, when checked the box, would take this class would take this class again, which is even more remarkable, given that I had a significant number of people who went in hating me. <laughs> Did they take the course because they were ready to hate you? Yeah, like they, that's they the had a preformed belief, kind of prove me wrong or to, to show me up or, or what have you. And and that mm -hmm. those are always the best things for me. I actually enjoy those the most. Well, that's because you're a good teacher. So what happened? You, you resigned. Obviously, things must have gotten pretty bad. Take us through it. What happened? <laughs> I'm actually I'm trying to work my way into not thinking about it, but uh, okay, I well. just want to I just want to say that you know I'm not a victim in this. I was the one mm -hmm. who started questioning. I was the one. I just despise the victim mentality. I think it's terrible. I I do realize that there was an unspoken agreement. If I just kept my mouth shut and backed off, just like everybody else, if I nodded my head and pretended to believe or actually did believe, nothing that happened to me would have ever happened to me but it's the questioning, it's the challenging, that's what ideologues don't like. Oh, and they, they also have no sense of humor. <laughs> so the more <laughs> I questioned and the more I challenged, the more outraged people became. And, the, well, and the when you're talking about these ideologues too. Yeah. What's that, I'm sorry. Well, I just became more curious because I, why would you be offended or outraged if you had sufficient evidence for what you believed? You just present the evidence. There'd be no reason well, to even get upset. Well, then you would have an opinion. Opinion would be backed by facts, right? 
You would say, Sandy Koufax, best pitcher ever. Here's my stats. I would give you some stats about somebody right. else, and we would have, you know, maybe your stats would be better than mine. I could amend that. But beliefs don't, don't work that way. We both know that. Right, right. Belief but systems let's, hate so let's new go facts. To that let's go to the example, and you'll excuse me. I know literally nothing about this. I don't even know who that person is. But but let, let's say that you say this person has great stats, best pitcher ever. I know that that's baseball. But uh, or is it soft was it baseball? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Baseball. And I, and I said, wait, wait a second. No, no, this, this guy over here from the Bruins or Red Sox, he has, he has better stats and I show you the stats. And when you see that a rational, reasonable person would change their mind based upon the evidence, but that's not what we have here. We have a situation in which you're not even allowed to present the other side. Right. Right. We have a situation right. that has a deterrence mechanism built into it to weaponize offices, of diversity, equity, inclusion to the, from, from those who question. And, and not only that, we have other mechanisms, hostility from colleagues, anonymous articles and papers, swastikas in bathrooms, uh, flyers around campus lying about you everywhere you look, big nose, Pinocchio nose, all this stuff. So there are mechanisms that are not only built into the system, but built into the culture that really um there's a built-in deterrent to questioning or challenging and this was among the students the administration where was this coming from you mentioned colleagues there well i mean i have no idea who was tagging the bathroom walls with swat stickers on my austin's door or i have i don't know who was putting up the flyers i i don't uh i don't know i mean i i look i i I'm just I'm just hesitant to to speak about this because I'm trying I'm trying to get away with away from it for my own uh, the good of my own mental health. But I think yeah. that the lar the larger point here is that we have created ecosystems that are ideological reinforcement chambers, and people go into these situations looking at the university as an ideology mill. So it's not a truth-seeking enterprise anymore. It's not a symposium, you know, from the Greeks where they used to go to dispute and then drink and then. Well, we can bracket the drinking, but um, to, to argue and to debate, it's more of a catechism. And the, the problem is that this is happening throughout the English speaking world, particularly in, that, in the United States. And this should worry all of us. It's deeply concerning to all of us. Why, why should it be concerning? Well, a lot of reasons. One, that colleges and universities are the engines of knowledge production. And those engines of knowledge production are now uh, held hostage to to an dangerous to, to a dangerous, insidious, and divisive ideology. The other thing is that tuition payers, in particular, need to know, know this. It's not the same education you received even five years ago. Certainly, nowhere near the same education you received seven or ten years ago. And so, what's happening in the universities is that they're activist departments and they're seeking ideological conformity to certain beliefs. That's not knowledge. That's not truth seeking. It's lost its North Star. Mm -hmm. And I did something yeah. at Portland State University. I did a reverse Q&A where it was open to the public. Anybody could come and speak. And it's really telling if you if you go to YouTube and reverse Q&A um, uh, and you can see what people say. I will say, you know, I really I'm trying to get away from speaking about it. If you want, Mike Nana, N-A-Y-N-A, -A, has a YouTube channel where he's documented all of this, from Brett Weinstein and Evergreen to what they did to me at Portland State. His, mm -hmm. his, it's all on film. It's impeccably documented. So you can watch it for yourself as it unfolds. 
Well, I'm I'm not trying to um, stir this back up for you and and raise un, unpleasant memories that you're trying to get away from. I'm I'm interested in this, as, uh, Peter, as a um, as a fractal representation of something that's actually gone well beyond the university walls. So that's why I asked, why is this dangerous? Because from my own vantage point, I'm watching this happen with respect to almost all topics at this point in time: Correct. medical topics, science topics, and and so the big gross split I see is. The president of the United States came out and said, we're frustrated with these anti-vax people as if they were a, a untermensch, right? They're a class of, of, of right. people. He just, so he wanted to coerce them. And I'm over here thinking, no, you have to persuade them. And there's a big world of difference between persuasion and coercion. Correct. And my point of view is that coercion never works because the best you can do is get a fake compliance out of somebody that looks good, but underneath, they're still simmering along. Uh, thinking what they want to think, right? Yeah, and it, so it's, it's not even it's not even coercion because you have many people. I, I, so here's the problem with with proceeding with the conversation. I don't know if it's many people. I don't know if it's most people. I don't know if it's some. I don't even know how many people believe this stuff because we've created a culture of fear. That's what happens when people don't speak honestly and openly. I have no idea what percentage of, of true believers there are. I think that there are a lot of true believers, but I don't know that there are a lot of true believers. Great point. And so. Part of that's a problem. And when you create cultures where people can't speak openly and honestly and sincere inquirers can't ask questions out of fear, you've created something, again, so that bracket that and then superimpose that upon a university system. That is the opposite of what a university should be. So to speak to the point of, of vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations and vaccination passports, I'll start by saying I have no domain specific expertise in this whatsoever. Zero. I'm, I'm, I don't know if you know who Sergeant Schultz is. And if you're old enough for me. I know nothing. Yes, I'm this, I know nothing. I'm the Sergeant Schultz of, of vaccination. I wouldn't listen to anything I say uh, in, in terms of that. But I would say what I find extremely interesting is that this is without question one of the most important and interesting ideas of our age right now. And how interesting is it that so few academic philosophers have weighed in on this? Mm. Have you thought about why that is? Why people who specialize in ethics and moral reasoning, history of intellectual thought in general, or philosophy overall, they don't weigh in on that? I think that the answer to that is very telling. I've seen almost nothing. And I think it's that the academy has created, I think it's part and parcel a process of the tenure system in which it creates a kind of submission. It creates a kind of intellectual docility. And it also teaches people only to, to talk among a very, to subspecialize. But I do think that, that honest philosophy, we can bring the tools of philosophy to bear on this problem, but simply nobody's talking about it. I also think that that goes to show that there's a problem endemic in the system. Is it fear of uh, loss of income? I'm going to lose my job. Is it fear of ostracization? Is it fear of being shamed or belittled or uh, otherwise rejected by society? What, what's the fear that's a great question. You really, you're a very good interviewer. Um, I think part of the part of the problem is that you really do need a kind of um, you need a kind of stomach, if you will. You need a kind of person, a disposition to start making your arguments in the public space. 
the names that you'll be called, you know, I'm called Nazi or what have you, like 50 times before breakfast, what people will, will say. And I want to get back to, to my surprise, the letter of resignation, how few, how much support that I got was utterly overwhelming. So I think it's that a lot of people just aren't willing to take the heat that comes with that. But I would argue that's not Socratic. That's not what philosophy should be about. You know, at some level, isn't the, the whole idea of philosophy a love of wisdom and, and using that to ameliorate human suffering and improve the human condition? If you're not doing that, what are you doing? I mean, you're just talking to a five or six people in your field who already agree with you. What good is that? Mm-hmm. And, and I mm-hmm. guess the secondary question to that is why should that be funded by or subsidized by the taxpayer? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Livio, can you just pull up uh, Umberto? There, w- there was a speaking of the support you got. There was a tweet that landed on your uh, tweet timeline there, um, which is at Peter Bogosian. And uh, Umberto wrote here, he says, uh, as a recent PSU graduate, the downward spiral of the institution makes me question the confidence and recognition that it instills in potential employers. I don't know if I'm better off leaving PSU out of my resume or keeping that information in. So you talk about that downward spiral. Um, I have to be honest with you. I would actually legit have a concern about hiring somebody straight out of Evergreen or maybe even PSU and probably a number of other places at this point because I need open minds. I need trainable people. I need people who are able to challenge an orthodoxy who, who because I'm 59. Every year, Peter, I know less than I knew the year before because every time I learn, there's just there's there's nuance I didn't understand. That's wisdom. Right? So, That's wisdom right there. And I need people who have the kernel of wisdom, right, it, it, as a starting point. The, the people who are rigid. So to me, there's it's not left right anymore. Up, down. Integrity is my highest value. And my highest expression of integrity is the complete willingness to be entirely reeducated at any moment. That's when you're solid. You're so solid in yourself that you're willing to be re-educated about anything. Yeah, and that's the the attitudinal disposition of which I spoke, the willingness to reconsider, a willingness to change your yeah. mind. That's a right. fundamental, if there were any such thing as a unified field theory of rationality, that would be one of the cornerstones of it. Yeah, and, and the bottom of that axis would be ideological rigidity to me. I Correct. don't care if that's a if that's a diehard um, Keynesian monetarist or a Marxist. Anybody right. who's really sought, like just knows for sure something is is you know that rigidity is not what I think we need in this day and age. Yeah, personally. I mean, so so that's the other interesting thing that we see. We well, we're not going to listen to him because he's on the right, or we're not going to listen to her because she's on the left. Or well, who cares where they are if they if they're saying something that's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. we, we need to get away from the tribalism and, and that's, I blame, I blame that at least in part on the universities and again, make truth the North star. And the moment that anything else is, but true, anything other than truth is arbitrary, right? So the, the moment that that happens is that we have a, an epistemic cascade. We start cascading and we start losing something of ourselves that's fundamental to our integrity. Yeah. We're beholden this, to another set of values that interfere with the truth. Exactly. So this this brings us into September 2019. You and I, we had a, a wonderful conversation because a book had just come out, How to Have Impossible Conversations. So this comes back from uh, our discussion, uh, Peter, back in 2019. Peter, what is an impossible conversation? And uh, why are we seemingly having fewer of them or more of them than ever before, I should say? 
That's a great question. An impossible conversation is a conversation across a divide or a gulf when you don't think it's possible. Uh So people are entrenched. One person or both people are ideologues. Nobody's listening. They're delivering messages. And so we wrote this book to break through those partisan divides and teach people how to communicate with each other. So yeah, and, and just just throw the throw the, the the cover up on there of the book because um, I think people should get this and read it. And I got to be honest with you, Peter, I had no idea how bad things were going to get. I thought things were pretty yeah. bad in 2019, and it was a great conversation to have. I know people who at that point were having very huge problems within family structures, within colleagues, right. that they felt they had to keep their opinions to themselves, that they were losing connection because of views they held and they just wanted to ask questions my tribe of people if anything we're right. curious right we're not we're unafraid to ask any question like what did right. happen on 9-11 is this ufo thing real we don't know right so you just ask the questions and you gather data and you form hypotheses you reject them and right. keep moving right it's just life now i feel what, what what's your diagnosis of where we are today in the impossible oh, no. conversation framework <laughs> Well, there's no question that things have gotten worse, and there's no question that there's not only something called you know, the, the word that's commonly used among people who participate in woke ideology is platforming. I'm not going to platform that person. But there's also the idea of guilt by association. You, so mm. they don't, it's, it's one thing if you don't want to talk to someone, you should be allowed to, talk, you're a free individual, you can talk to whoever you want to talk to. But it's quite another thing when other people are telling you, don't talk to him. You, you know, when some people are telling you who you can talk to, but even beyond that, I think the consequence of walking on eggshells for so long and being obsessed with certain things, race, or even looking at people in racial categories, somebody I'm, I'm, I'm friends with a, a medical student. He sent me a text uh, at Oregon health science university. And I have the documentation for this. They wanted them to voluntarily self-segregate into groups on the basis of um, rate of, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I can show you the text afterward. I'll text you um, basically racial identity. I mean, that's just mortifying, but all of those things just put an already difficult conversation into hard mode. Right? So we have all of these things interfering. We have fake news, Russian bots, all of this stuff. But now we also have an intrinsic hostility towards certain ideas, we're looking at people in terms of immutable characteristics like race or sexual orientation and affording them certain um, access to the truth, if you will, thinking that, oh, uh, if the more marginalized one is, the more, um, again, access to the truth one. Is. So we have all of these variables that have come in. Here's another thing that I'd like to throw into that, that recipe for making a, a difficult conversations even more difficult is we have the idea of lived experience. Well, it's, that's not my lived experience. And so lived experience in the worldview will always trump facts and evidence. So who are you to contradict my lived experience? Or, you, you know, those statements about how many people are killed by, how many unarmed Black men, for example, are killed by the police, they contradict my lived experiences. And so we, we can't get together and even think about what rational public policies are if we have the idea, if we have a significant number of people, particularly young people, thinking that their lived experience gives them direct a- access to the truth and overrides any data and evidence. That's I mean, it's a difficult problem. Point. Yeah. And, and in my field, I'm a scientist. I take science. I, I, I defend it. I see a lot of bad science happening, but I see in particular people who are woke are often using this science club 
uh, as a club, a physical club, um, even though it's not, they're not, they won't look at the science, they don't understand the science, it, it's become a, um, right. a, a measure of inclusion or exclusion for them. It's not about the actual uh, data itself, uh, right? Okay, can, can we linger on that for a moment, please? Chris? Yeah, sure, let's do it. So it's extremely important if we, if 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 this is a maybe a little bit of a philosophical uh, too philosophical not enough practical for a solution but one of the things that we have to do is we have to stop pe punishing people who say i don't know and we have to start rewarding them it's mm. a good thing if you say i don't know when you don't know in fact, it is an excellent thing and people should compliment you because if you create a culture in which you're not allowed to say, I don't know when you don't know, what you're actually doing is creating a culture that rewards people for pretending to know things they don't know. Nobody has benefited from that. And if you're not willing to allow sincere people to ask honest questions or you go into a classroom, for example, convinced that you know the right answers to moral questions. And if you know, the, if somebody believes that they know the right answers to moral questions, they stop seeking. Well, why would they seek? Mm -hmm. They already know it. And then not only that, if they're in positions of authority in a classroom, then they test people on that. So they people literally are tested as right or wrong answers. So the idea that so so when you ask me about vaccinations, I made it very clear, like, I don't know, you have uh, 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 some expertise in this. I have no expertise in this. And so we need to start start figuring out immediately whose voice doesn't matter. So my voice doesn't. You also asked me about think baseball. I know nothing about baseball. So my voice doesn't matter in terms of baseball. And we have to start being honest that first of all, having a large platform does not equate with having a specific uh, domain domain specific expertise. Right? Those are two unrelated things. But the core point there is when someone says I don't know that you should never demean them. You, they should not be called into investigation or questioned. You should thank them, even if it's within their area of expertise. I don't know is almost always, if not always, a wonderful answer to a question. And I was wrong and I've changed my mind is one of my faves. Abs 100%. I love that. Um, so actually, I'm glad you dwelled on this because this actually raises a really key point for me, which is that I think what we're seeing a lot of is fear. And people are afraid of a right. lot of things. So I get this. It's, let me take a slight detour. Every so often, somebody will say, Chris, I can't believe you interviewed that guy. Don't you realize once he said or she said this one thing? And it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's something they said. So, so what they're raising is this prospect that somebody has to be totally clean. They have nothing, no skeletons in their background. They have no what I'm going to call being human. Because if we're humans, we're messy and we don't always have good days and we evolve and sometimes we were ill-formed when we were younger right. and all of that stuff. But now you can be canceled if you said something as a 19-year-old when you're 35, right? Right. And, it's, and so because of that, think of the terror you live with because we all know in our heart of hearts that we're also messy people who think, right. if not sometimes act out in inappropriate ways. It happens. So right. we're not allowed to be human anymore. So I'll give you I'll give you an easy solution to that easy and thought, but uh, very difficult right now in practice. We, we grew up in an age in which we write about this and how to have impossible conversations. Let friends be wrong. It was OK. I had friends who had different beliefs. I had friends. Uh, I had a, a close friend of mine who was a Republican. We had friends who had different beliefs that didn't affect our 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 friendships. 
but but now there's something in which ideological homogeneity and congruence of all beliefs i mean you can't even somebody i won't mention any names but somebody uh two two good friends of mine were engaging with each other and each of them was texting me about the other stance on vaccinations and basically it is how could you be friends with that person they had that stance on vaccinations and i said look look we don't, I mean, I don't police my friends' beliefs. Now, are there deal breakers? Yeah, of course there are deal breakers. If you know some, we can talk about the deal breakers later. But the idea that you would not be friends with someone because they voted for a different political candidate or they have a different stance on immigration—I mean, that's just that's just insane to me. I mean, that's just. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, you would want to have friends like that so you could challenge your own beliefs, have spirited debates, understand what people on the other side of an issue believe, and so it's completely okay to let friends be wrong. In fact, not only is it okay, it's like saying, I don't know, it's something that we should strive to do. It's a virtue to have friends who have different political, social, economic, moral, sexual beliefs, etc. I mean, yeah, doesn't yeah, that just it, seem it, obvious? It does seem obvious. Um, and, and so I'm wondering, I, let me go back to the amount of support you received, because I think yeah. one of the things that social media has done is it's created the appearance, if not a temporary reality, that we're outnumbered. But when I have private conversations with people, Peter, and maybe I have a very self-selecting audience, but people don't want this world you're talking about. Correct. They want to live in this world that's more open, more tolerant, more, um, you know, not not about like this really temporary veneer grade identity that's as good as, as your last action, you know, and, and revocable. What kind of world is that to live in? So how, how go, let's go back, you know, this is anecdote time, but your support, how, oh, t tell me about it. Un unbelievable. It's, 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 I mean, I was te tearing up. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, just thousands. I always make sure I turn off my email because it ding, 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 ding. My phone. I think I turned my phone off. Yeah, I turned my. It's just ding, ding. I mean, it's just a nonstop cascade of support, and it's just so touching. But not only that, I was expecting. Um, I was expecting much more hate from you know the usual people, people with pronouns in their bios, et cetera. I just didn't didn't um, I just that just didn't manifest. And I've been I think people know that this is a problem. They don't really know what to do about it. Um, I've been screaming about this problem for years now, and it, you know people people initially thought I was a crackpot. Uh, I've been totally touched and completely overwhelmed by the level of support that I've received. I mean, just brought me to tears. And so I think at core, people know there's a problem. They want to help and support. And I've not taken any money. Uh, I have a nonprofit that I've started, National Progress Alliance, but I've taken no money for, for from people whatsoever. This is not about money. This is not about, you know, all those accusations of grifting. No, this is about principle. This is about what kind of institutions we want to have. And this is about what kind of institutions we want to have, uh, that we do have, and what an education means for our students. And they're simply not receiving the education they need to not only to function as productive adults in society, but to keep the, the, the democracy moving forward. It's just not happening. Even if a PSU education was free, I don't think it would be a, a good deal for my kids. Um, how much do people pay to go there? I have no idea. I don't, I have no idea how much people pay to go there. Hmm. I bet it's in many, many tens of thousands would be my guess, probably. Um, well, the, 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 the other problem too, is you have to remember, this is a public institution. Right. So the, the the president of PSU has said racial justice is the highest priority of the institution. 
And I've, I've asked many people, again, CNN hasn't had me on the, or I've wanted to sit down with the Oregonian, the Oregon public broadcasting, Rachel Maddow, MSNBC. I want to have a conversation, uh, an honest conversation. Should racial justice be the highest priority of a public educational institution? I think that's a completely, not only is it a reasonable question, I think it's our duty as taxpayers to ask that. And this is what the president has said in public statements and, and elsewhere, that this is the highest response, this is his highest priority. And, and I think we're, we're right to not necessarily challenge that. I'd, I'd like to know what the reasoning for that is. And I'd like, but there, there's a, a large segment of a closed media ecosystem that refuses to have that conversation. Well, and you've, you've painted that one more time here is left of center. Why is that? Ah, now that's the question, isn't it? Why do you think mm -hmm. it is? <laughs> why, 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 why do you think that's the question? So this is troubling for me because I would say that I grew up uh, as a liberal. Mm -hmm. And the things that I really value as liberals. So here's here's what there are still some good liberals out there. So so I just interviewed RFK Jr. You know, and he's classic. Here's a guy waiting in, doing what he thinks is right. He's he's you know, and and he's taken a lot of pot shots, but but he's against you know giant corporations running over uh, individuals. So to me, when I was growing up, a liberal would be anti-war, kind of you know distrustful of big corporations, absolutely not um, interested in in believing what the CIA or FBI or other three-letter acronyms had to say. Fairly distrustful of sort of yeah. secretive government stuff, and I think that's almost completely inverted. Um, the liberals that's, now, I think, are are cheerleaders yeah. for endless war. They love the big corporations, and you know, it's just I don't recognize it anymore. So I, I don't even know what I'm talking about when I say left anymore. I don't. It it feels yeah, like that's a, that that's a big problem. Is that the the words mean something very very different, even from ten years ago? Certainly, when we grew up, you knew exactly what a liberal believed. You knew exactly what a conservative believed. But so, so I, th I think that's why I use those examples of MSNBC, CNN, uh, OPB. But it's not just, I, 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 I don't want to complicate it, but we need to bring in another access. It's not just liberal conservative, but it's really woke. Uh, and to what extent one participates in, in that orbit of woke What do you mean ideology. by woke? What, what's, what is the woke ideology? The woke ideology is, I just read, so I wanted just to say two things on that. If anybody has any questions to you know, how do you disambiguate words or what, what does the term mean? I have a video series coming out about that that should be coming out this month where I give 60 second videos to try to explain. I do, do my best to try to explain that some of these are very complicated, but if they want resources, I'm gonna give you two resources, then I'll define woke. One resource is uh, James Lindsay's New Discourses. He has a social justice encyclopedia where he takes from the literature, this is what they say, and then uh, this is an interpretation. The other thing is if you want to do a deep dive on this, I'd recommend Cynical Theories by Helen Pluckrose. And it's a phenomenal book that's the Rosetta Stone for the current moment. Mm -hmm. So woke means being awoken to social injustice, waking up to this. Also, it means uh, you're, the role that you play in being complicit in this. The more woke you are, the more you, re you realize that the, the that you can't be woke enough, and that the systemic there is systemic injustice. Every that that it's baked into the system, and so wokeism the degree to someone to which someone is woke is the degree to which they participate in that worldview, and it is a worldview. Okay, 
and um, you're bringing this other axis in, these are people who are woke, um, they still tend to, to be clustered what we would call traditionally left of center, but are you saying, Correct. is this a whole third axis though? C Correct, and so that's a parasitic value that's latched itself onto leftism and liberalism. Now that doesn't mean that the right doesn't have their problems. Of course they have their problems, mm -hmm. but the right don't control the educational institutions. The left control the educational institutions and not just the left. There are very few kind of Noam Chomsky traditional leftists left in the academy. It's almost all governed by wokeism. And so, so this and woke that's the other, let me, just let me just, sorry, so just sure, linger on that for a second. So, so um, in other words, they've kind of bartered economic considerations of traditional leftist for considerations of privilege. So just as the economic left wanted to flatten the, the uh, curve and, for example, income distribution, the woke left wants to flatten the curve in terms of privilege distri distribution. They want to increase the privilege of the, those on the bottom and decrease the privilege on the top. And so there are governing ideologies uh, of the woke and the suite of beliefs in, in which the woke participate that manifest themselves in institutional governance policies. Now, this is fascinating to me because you, you said one of their goals might be to to decrease the privilege of those at the top and, and increase the, the privilege of those on the bottom. And and so one of my favorite targets for this is the Federal Reserve. They all sound nice. Jerome Powell says, you know, big comforting words. Everybody, including on the left and the woke and everybody just eats his words up. And they are most responsible institutionally for creating the wealth gap that we see it's obvious, it's provable, and nobody in the woke right. crowd says anything about it. And it drives right. me nuts because I'm like, if you really want to close that gap, maybe you should start with the institution that's most responsible for that. But I feel like they instead want to make it an individual issue, not an institutional issue. So they've become less institutional critics and more individual critics. And I don't understand that. Okay, so there's an idea of that any disparate Ibram Kennedy's writes about this other Pitan Hashiko, et cetera. The idea is that any disparity in outcome has to be to, due to systemic racism, which is just demonstrably false. And so they, they're looking at things in terms of system. But one thing we haven't talked about that I think would assist our discussion is the idea of equity. And so mm -hmm. equity is jerry-rigging a system so that you, you make certain outcomes. So um, equity, unfortunately, is used as a synonym for equality, and they're exactly the opposites. Equity and equality is treating people equally. Equity, equity as it's used, is not a finance term. Equity in the, the woke literature, the critical social justice literature, as Helen Pluckerus refers to it, is the idea that, that um, you would look at historical oppression markers and variables and give those people who have been historically oppressed certain advantages. But by definition, when you do that, you have to give other uh, identity markers a disadvantage. However, and I don't mean to muddy the waters, Chris, but I have to complicate this a little bit or also it, it won't be Go for it. your audience won't have the full picture that doesn't apply to Jews and Asians. So it only applies to people with certain certain identity, um, uh, historical oppression markers and identity variables. Right. So uh, so that, that gets a little tangly. Um, it's kind of hard to make sense of any of that is uh, um, and it doesn't sound very scientific to me. How much how much actual 
hard sort of um, reproducible sort of uh, evidence could could we have historically that we could dig through and and uh, understand if this was uh, accurate right, or true? Man. All right, man, that's an awesome question. You want to take you want to just take the conversation to a whole new level? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's what's happened. So the your question is a question that a thoughtful, sane person would ask. Here's the problem with the question. We have to talk for a minute about idea laundering, which uh, after we did the, the grievance studies thing where we published uh, you know, bogus papers and journals, we were at Brett Weinstein's house. Uh, I saw uh, that was uh, uh, Helen Pluckrose, uh, Mike Nana, and, and, and James Lindsay and myself. And uh, we, we were talking about, he said, that's idea laundering. And instantly I knew what he meant. The idea is, so here's the question. Here's what's happening, and then let's superimpose this on your question. So what's happening is a bunch of ideologues get together. I talked about this on Barry Weiss's podcast just recently. A bunch of ideologues get together and are people who have strong, let's, let's frame it more neutrally, people who have strong moral impulses about something get together. They're in academia. They make a journal. They discharge those moral impulses in a journal and it comes out the other end as knowledge. So it's been laundered, it's been washed, right? And so mm -hmm. then they point to those articles and they say, look, this is how we know something. So when you ask me, well, how much scholarly literature, how much evidence? Well, none, but it looks from the outside like there's a ton, but, but, it, but it's all been laundered. These are all the moral impulses of, ide of, of ideologues. There's no evidence at all. But again, from outside the system looking in, you say, wow, there's this journal and this article and all these journals and articles. But the fact is that those aren't tethered to reality. They're not rigorous and they're not scientific. And when you point out that they're not rigorous and scientific, instead of people saying, oh, well, geez, well, maybe there's a problem here, they'll call you a bad person. They'll tell you you're unethical. They'll say, well, it's not just these disciplines, it's other disciplines. You know, and Helen, mm -hmm. Helen has a wonderful, she gave a wonderful response to that. You know, if, if someone says to you, if you say, look, my, my basement is infected with cockroaches and they say, yeah, but you, your neighbor's basement is infected with cockroaches too. That doesn't mean your basement isn't infected with cockroaches. In other words, if you point out certain problems in lines of literature, that doesn't mean that other lines of literature don't have their problems. It means that there are problems in these lines of literature and people are basing public policies off of ideas that have been laundered. And, and they think that they're leading us to a good life and leading us to human flourishing, but they're not because, mm -hmm. because they're, what they're basing it on is just not knowledge. It's not only is it not knowledge, there is actually evidence that contradicts these things. Was that clear? No. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I first, I mean, back when I cut my teeth, you wanted to know one of the things that got me launched and has me in this chair in the first place was, was watching what happened during um, the second Gulf War. And I watched this idea laundering, right, where where um, a, a, a Pentagon unnamed source would plant an idea, it would go in the New York Times, it would go up onto a talk show, and then the vice president would say, look, it's been confirmed, right? right. Probably came right under his office in the first place, but uh, you, that's a, a laundered idea, right? Right. Um, 
because you, you, you put it out there and then it gets and it takes on a life of its own. And I'm watching that happen right now. Again, back in my own, I'm, I'm tracking this whole COVID thing very carefully and what's happened to science and medicine. It's just a beater. It's, it's a nightmare. And so people, the reason I care about it, you want to know why I care about it? Because mm. you were choking on smoke and it was 117 in Portland. And I know we have a huge, huge problem, set of predicaments on our hands where we're going to have to be clear eyed, sharp, razor, razor sharp, rigorous. And we can't even get our arms around something as simple as um, it's probably best to have our kids have open minds or you shouldn't shame somebody into a position that they don't hold legitimately or that we can't even talk about science anymore. I don't know if you just saw Nicki Minaj said, I have questions about these vaccines. Legit. They haven't even passed their phase three trials yet. You can have questions. She wasn't allowed to have questions. She was shamed on all the talk shows, Colbert, and they just they, they made fun of her and they belittled her and they did all of that, right? Um, I can't believe instead, I'm actually in a, in a podcast where someone mentions Nicki Minaj. That's a first. Okay. There it is, right? And probably first time <laughs> she's come out of my mouth too, but but here we are. Uh, so, but I, 2021, but, baby. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, bring it. So here it is. So that's why I care because I think it's time for us to have really hard conversations. Correct. Right? Because if we're really serious about climate change, right, people say, oh, we have to decarbonize, Chris, 50% by 2030. I say, great, which 70% of the jobs are going away? That's what it means. And but we can't talk about that because they'll default into into dogma. Oh, no, we just have to put up more wind towers. I'm like, can we just get a crayon and the napkin out and do a little math? It's not going to work. Right. The, the first step in solving any problem is to be honest about it. And we're not honest about it. So if you're not, if right. you're not willing to be honest about your problems, I mean, I think um, I don't really want to go down this route, but I've been um, this Afghanistan thing. Boy. This is, this is, I mean, I'm, I really don't want to go down the route, but I, I mean, this has been, I mean, this has been the most, I can't think of a larger catastrophe in my lifetime. And I think it's time to start reevaluating the, as you said before, the endless wars. I think it's time to start making some very hard, taking some very hard looks at, look, look at who we are as a people, what we want, military budgets. Are we really going to protect Taiwan? What does the rest of the world think of us? Can we project hard power, soft power? Uh, do, do our, you know, what's the role of NATO? Whatever. I think this is a time, this is the end of empire. There's no, no question about that. And I think what's happening in the university system is a manifestation of that. I think the defund the police movement, the Portland is a cesspool right now. You know, so that's, this is another probably a road I'm not sure I want to go down, but all of these things are connected, right? They're all like, they're not just a string through pearls. They're like, it's like a matrix and all of these are nodes on a matrix. Hmm. So, uh, you know, Ted Wheeler, who's, who's a disgrace of a mayor has, is, is trying to, uh, uh, you know, make a response from Portland to, to the, what's happening in Texas to the abortion law. Now, I, I don't know what your stance on abortion is. I happen to be pro-choice, but the very fact that he would think about that when we have a homeless epidemic, a trash epidemic, a murder epidemic, when he got rid of the gun reduction task force, the murders, and who was murdered, by the way, young black men got murdered. 
not not old white guys like me and you young young black men got murdered or middle-aged white guys i'll say um the very reason you're welcome uh the 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 very they don't call our hair uh uh gray anymore it's silver i don't know if you noticed that but um (laughs) the, the, the very thing that he was trying to prevent and so he shouldn't even be thinking about pronouns he shouldn't even be thinking about texas and abortion until he helps the people who are in desperate need of services until the streets are cleaned up until the murder rate is under control and so we've really had a a failure to morally triage. We've had a failure, a systemic wide failure at every single level to, I mean, he is the mayor of Portland. His job, it's literally his job to serve the city of Portland. His job isn't to serve the women who aren't getting, and, and I say this as someone who's who's pro-choice, to, to, to serve the, the, the women of Texas who aren't allowed to get abortions anymore. That's not his job. That's not he could move to Texas and try to be a mayor of a city and then try to. That's fine. I have no. In fact, I think that would be wonderful. But there's a fail, a failure to reason honestly, a failure to speak openly and and a failure to morally triage things. And I would argue that at least in part, that's not due to a cultural current. It's the fact that there are there are. the narrative has been spun that there are right answers to moral questions. Certain people know them. And if you question that, you're not just merely mistaken. You're a bad person. Like there's something wrong with you. So we need to get back to this idea of having an impossible conversation, having a conversation across a divide. And yeah, it's okay if you have a difference of opinion with someone. That's fine. You can still be friends with them. And hopefully you'll continue the conversation at another point, right? So- mm-hmm. We've lost something fundamental. And I am deeply, I'm past the point of concern. I'm deeply worried. I'm actually worried right now. What are you worried about? I'm worried. I, I don't even know where to begin with that question. I'm I'm worried. My own life, I'm not worried about it at all. I think my life is going to be awesome. I left with my integrity intact. I'm sleeping. Finally, I'm Lovely. feeling great. Uh, life is life, life is looking good. Um, but I'm I'm worried about the I'm worried about the United States. I'm worried about the rise of an if you for all those people on the far left, if you think the United States was bad, wait until you see the new hegemon. Okay. I'm I'm worried about the mm-hmm. lack of civility. I'm worried about the split in the country. I'm worried about ecological issues and people not speaking speaking honestly, you know. My, my former employer, they used to talk about recycling, recycling, recycling. Look, you could recycle. I mean, it's just, it's such a ridiculous, you, you need to be honest about the plastic in the oceans. You could recycle for the rest of your life. You'd be far better off never recycling anything in the rest of your life and getting a vasectomy at 18. But like things like that, like having an honest conversation, Jared Diamond in, in uh, Collapse talks about, you know, the collapse of civilizations. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. deeply concerned about the incivility. I'm concerned about the capitulation to mob rule, uh, ripping down statues. I don't really couldn't care less if they're statues. I kind of like some of the, you know, deer statues and stuff, but ultimately it's not really, I really don't care, but there are ways to get, there are ways through democratic means that you can have those statues removed. We can't let a bunch of thugs who just don't like a statue rip it down and then the police stand around watching. I mean, that's just, that's totally insane to me. By the way, the other thing I'm worried about is the, 
idea that's very recent, I think you'll appreciate this. If you ask anybody our age and older, it, you know, if you had a time machine and you could go back, and, and I'm going to get back to the question, what am I worried about? And say, hey, you know, these some people are going to go around destroying businesses and shops, and maybe they have a good reason, maybe they don't. They're going to be ripping down statues, they're going to be attacking courthouses. What do you think should happen to them? They would say to you, what do you mean, what do you think should happen to them? Well, they should be arrested. Now, if you say that, people view you as a conservative. If you say these people should be arrested if they write me, well, that's because you're some, no, it's not because I'm some kind of conservative. And so the shifting of the Overton window into, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about our universities. I'm worried about our ability to be economically competitive. I'm worried about this insane debt that we're accumulating in this country. It's like a debt on top of debt on top of bubbles. Biden's, you know, believe me, I'm, I'm a big fan of infrastructure. And I think we need, we need a more robust and, and, and more reliable infrastructure. But the insane spending, that is, you just can't, the, and when we're starting to see the uh, inflationary uh, repercussions of that. And that's why I think, you know, Bitcoin's volatility, that's another story. But I'm deeply worried about our ability to move forward as a people to find common agreement, to find, I mean, this, this whole going from Trump to Biden, I mean, my God, I'm worried about our ability to find, uh, I mean, whatever you think of, for example, you know, Tony Blair, watching him in the House of Commons was just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Who do we have like that? I don't know anybody. I'm, I'm worried. I'm just I'm worried about there's almost nothing socially I'm, I'm not concerned about right now, at the very least concerned, if not worried about almost every aspect of the society. Yeah, I'm that yeah, we share that. Um, and and I have a very systems thinking view, right? So I can't understand the economy without understanding energy as well as the environment and put all these pieces together. Um, uh, this this matrix of nodes you talked about, yeah, it sounds can like I what you're saying is the I'm sorry, can I add one more thing? Yeah, of course. I'm sorry, I just, I just thought of this and and I'm worried about the Tom Nichols has a book about this. I'm worried about the destruct the distrust of experts, but I'm not that worried about it. What I'm really worried about is that people attain positions not due to merit. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the crisis of legitimacy in our institutions, which is wholesale right now on all yes, sides yes. of the political aisle. I'm worried th about the fact that we do not have a gold standard and imprimatur of knowledge because our peer reviewed process has been corrupted. But I'm really, really worried about the, the fact that people will get jobs not based upon merit, but based upon exogenous characteristics. And if you do that long enough, not only will there be a lack of trust in institutions, but the lack of trust in institutions will be because the institutions are not worth trusting. And they've, the institutions have proven themselves to be utterly unworthy of our trust at this point in time. When the Federal Reserve Correct. prints money, right, and, and Federal Reserve officials just came out and said, oh, should we not have been front running our own trades and padding our own personal bank accounts? Oh, we'll look into that. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. It's like, how is that even a question, right? Correct. Universities thinking nothing of t getting a, a young person 250000 in debt to start their life, thinking nothing of that feeling, no obligation to how that's going to turn out, taking none of that risk, just 
here's all the debt, good luck with that, right? And not even running an ROI on the specific subspecialties they're, they're cranking out. When it comes to the CDC, being honestly dishonest about all kinds of things because it's more important to them to nudge us than to be honest with us because they've already broken the contract and said, we don't trust you. We can't be honest with you. You would do something right. inappropriate with the real information. So we're going to nudge you in the directions we think you should go. Yeah. Right? Neil, Neil Ferguson has some wonderful stuff on his book, Doom, about that. And I would urge people to read that if they haven't read it. And how masks, for example, have been a political thing as opposed to mm -hmm. looking at the science and the evidence. And that's mm -hmm. really an, a core value that we should look. We're going to make mistakes when we look at evidence. There's no question about it. I mean, that's why they're sincere people have disputes. They have different thresholds, for example, for what constitutes reliable evidence and how that should inform public policy. But at core, you and me and everybody else, we have to value being a slave to the evidence. And we have to value changing our mind based upon what the evidence is. And okay, if you don't want to wear a mask or whatever, the, the real question is, what is the evidence? And what does the science say? And have people tried, that's what science is, they tried to refute hypotheses, not forward them. And what you see now in a lot of peer-reviewed journals are the, what is morally fashionable is more likely to get published. And if it's more likely to get published, you get more articles. Uh, so when you go up for promotion and tenure, you'll be more likely to get that. So it's not based upon what's true anymore. And I feel that that has a cascade. I know, I don't feel. I know that that has a cascading effect, not only on the compromising in the institution's ability to create knowledge, but every time that happens, there's a further erosion of trust in the system. And we have, people have to trust, for example, the police. They have to trust the legal systems. They have to trust the judicial systems. And at the moment we, and we're in a, nobody trusts the systems anymore. But they don't trust the systems. Some of those people don't trust the systems for illegitimate reasons. Like I came up with a question, kind of I'm I, I'm uh, uh, I'm trying to kind of a woke scale, like how woke someone is. How many unarmed police were killed by? Uh, how many unarmed black people, unarmed black men were killed by the police in 2019? And I've been asking a lot of people that question. Uh, a neighbor of mine, a physical neighbor of mine, said. Um, it's 22,500. The, the number is closer to 12. Um, but so, so, so we, so if you believe that, then your trust in the police system will basically plummet to below zero. You'll think that they're all homicidal maniacs out to kill black people, right? Any re if it really were 22,500, every rational person would think that, my God, there's like a daily homicide going on. So when people's starting information is incorrect, when they're not forming their beliefs on the basis of evidence, but when they get in these ideological echo chambers, so I'm talking a lot, I'm sorry, I have a lot of content up, maybe I've had too much cold brew coffee, but uh, the National Association for Scholars released a report at uh, Portland State University among administration and, and faculty, I think, of, of uh, campaign finance contributions, 99% of it, 99% were to one party, you can guess the party. So, so mm -hmm. that's not, that's creating a monoculture. That's not creating intellectual diversity. That's not saying, okay, we're gonna have the best people look at the, who can voice it, look at the best evidence and we're gonna let people decide for ourselves. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a catastrophe. This is a catastrophe and we need to be honest about what it is. I agree with that. You know, it was back in 1840, whatever, Charles McKay wrote his book on popular delusions and the madness of crowds. He said, I'm going to paraphrase this slightly. It has been well said that men go mad in herds, but only regain their senses slowly and one by one. Mm 
Right. Um, and and so I feel like I feel like we're in a popular delusion. I, I know a lot of very deluded people. So even Bill Maher had an episode recently. He said, "Hey, look, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent, severely influence what you thought your chance of going to the hospital would be if you got COVID." Democrats, forty-one percent of them thought there was a fifty percent chance of going to the hospital, and the actual number is five percent to one percent, depending where you live. Right. right. So where did they get this hugely distorted opinion, which then informs their their fear and what they want to do and how right. important it is to take all these policies? Right. Exactly. So not only where do they get it, uh, but I'll answer quickly. One of the places they get that is from the media ecosystem, one ecosystem. I only listen to this. I only listen to you should be listening to as much diverse stuff as you can. But the other thing is, if you actually believe that the chance of death, if you had a belief that was wildly disproportionate to the evidence, you can kind of see that it would make sense how people would would act accordingly and vote accordingly. So that's why it's really important to clean up our epistemic lives, to clean up our our belief lives. And, And the reason is because if you don't do that, if you have initial beliefs formulated on evidence that's just not even evidence or or you know something wildly incommensurate to what it is, then you're gonna act in such a way that you think you're creating a good life for yourself and your community, but you're doing exactly the opposite. Right, right. So how do we get out of this mess that we're in? Um, I'm really intrigued by by the support you got. And by the way, I'm over here sitting on my own private knowledge too, which is I know a lot of people, many of them very powerful, who don't want it to be this way. And we're tired of fighting the old narrative. And so we're talking about, well, how do we just come forward, raise our hands publicly into the world and say, we're having non-crazy conversations over here. Please come join us anytime you're ready. I don't want to shame these people and tell them they have bad ideas or their, their right. data is fraudulent. Just say, hey, listen, when you when when slowly and one by one, when, when when you come out of this state you're in, we'll be over here having this conversation. We'd love to have you. Right. right. That's exactly the attitude that you have to take. And I think that's why your podcast is so popular and Joe Rogan's podcast is so popular is because they they speak honestly about the issues. They're engaged. They're not afraid. They're not held hostage to the diversity board. They're not told they can't render their opinion about certain subjects, et cetera. And, and I think, you know, Aristotle's right. People do have have a hunger to know. People want to know. And, you, you know, your question of how do we do you want to tackle the question of how do we get out of it? Cause it's a huge question. Yeah, I, I really would. I would love to know how we get out of this. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I started the national progress Alliance. It's what I'm going to be doing. It's national progress Alliance.org. And so the first order of business I would say is you, you, you have to develop, I gave a talk in, in London um, about this before the pandemic you have to be willing to stand up. You have to be willing to be honest. You, you, at, a, at a, a simpler level, you have to just show up. So you have mm-hmm. to show, if you look at Benjamin Boyce's, for example, uh, YouTube series on equity, there are only like five people who show up to this meeting. And all of these people, I mean, truly think about that. People just don't show up to meetings anymore. So you need to show up when there's a diversity training, show up. You need to not only show up, but you need to take pictures of any materials they hand out. You need to videotape it. You need to document it. And then Jody Shaw did a wonderful thing. She's the woman at Smith College who came out with I Have a Few Requests video. Phenomenal. Right. I would urge people to watch that. Jody Shaw for Smith College. So one thing is that this ideology does not like to be exposed. It's kind of like um, 
uh, cockroaches in there. They don't like the light um, and they flourish in darkness. And so exposing this is good, showing up. And, and if you're younger, this is the most difficult thing to tell people is that you think that you have friendships with people, but they're fair weather friendships. If, if you're afraid to speak your mind, then people don't know you who, for who you really are. They know you for who they think you are. And you'll never develop authentic friendships that way. So you have to be able to both speak your mind. The key in the back of your head should always be, I'm willing to revise my beliefs. I'm willing to change my mind. But you have to be forthright in your speech with people. If you're not doing that, then the people you think are your friends, they're just not your friends. And so you will lose a lot of friends, but the friendships you have will be friendships of virtue, friendships in, in which you can have open and honest conversations with people who will know you and love you for who you are. And that's the other thing that we've lost about this. All of our, our, our relationships have been compromised. So it, it's a very complicated problem. You know, there are things people can do on an individual level. And we also have to think about this is my job now, what I think it to be, what I take it to be. How do we change the moral mind? How do we change it so that we start valuing open discussion, discourse? And with that comes from the fact that many of the, we wouldn't say insights of the woke because that, that's given it far too much credit, but there's a kernel of truth, of profound truth in all of this stuff. There has been egregious um, treatment of people on the basis of their skin color, on the basis of their sexual orientation. I don't think any sane person could disagree with that. The question is, what do we do about it and how do we move forward? And there, the other question is whether or not, to, to what extent systems are complicit in that, you know, economic systems, judicial systems, political systems. And so we have to start getting back to valuing certain things. And among those things are having conversation. And within that is it's okay if someone disagrees with you, you can disagree. We're all Americans. We all have to live in society. And certain forms of government are better than others. The democratic system, the system that, that, that we have certain policies like, like due process, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. These are things worth fighting for. These are things people have died for that have consequences that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what I'm taking from this is that uh, it's really important that people like yourself or myself or uh, any of the other people you've mentioned uh, here so far, that, that we just um, that we stand up. And, and I've taken right. a lot of a lot of body blows from this. Right. And it, and it comes and I know it's part of the territory. My skin's a lot thicker than it used to be. Uh, and to be. but but the good news about this, if yeah. so, for anybody listening, I now know who my friends really are, and I have right. incredible friends who, who I know people in this past year who I've just met who are now far better friends to me than, any, than people I've known for decades, right? Because we are now bound around this idea that they are, they, they are people of very high integrity. And, right. and this, this whole system of 2020 and 2021 is sort of exposed a lot, and it's shown me who, who's really willing to stand up and, and Right. Uh, and they operate with integrity. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. They're, they're friendships of virtue. And with those people, the people you, you literally just spoke about, those people, you're willing to speak your mind. You're willing to be honest and open. Um, and my bet, my bet is that those aren't merely people who share your opinions about things. They're like you said, they're people of integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, it's super exciting. So, so, you know, the, this, uh, 
uh, this book that really caught me with um, a good friend of mine, Jason Feldman, said you have to read this book called The Swerve. I don't know if you've read it, but no. it, it describes the, the rediscovery of Lucretius's poem about on the nature of things, right? Mm-hmm. And what's startling to me about that is that in th- the year 30 BC, some people sat around in togas and basically resolved atomic physics down to string theory, chemistry, evolution. They'd un- they'd gone they'd figured it all out. It was like a, it's no wonder the church burned this thing, right? You know, as much as they could. They missed a copy. It's amazing. And so I'm like, the only way you can be all humans have that capability to be that observationally perspicacious. But the way you get there is you have to have friendships and and associations with people who are intellectually rigorous, which means not certain, not experts, but they're open and curious, right? So that to me is is the great gift about all this is I now am I feel like the people I get to hang out with and talk with are, are on that same wavelength. It's like, wow, we've got some big challenges coming. How are we going to participate in that? And what's my role? So it's less about who my old life was about what do I do? How it's about the doing. Now it's about the being is more important. How yeah, what, a, what what a richer congratulations because it's what a richer life, right? Yes. Absolutely. So that's the invitation on the other side. This isn't like there's crazy people we have to get away from. You know, right. Marcus Aurelius said, you know, the, the number one job in life is to not join the ranks of the insane. Um, but there are people out there who are curious and open and, and pressing forward. So I know and you're one sad, of them. How sad for those people who are trapped like that, right? How sad for those people who are beholden to an ideology because they never really could even fathom how much better their lives could be. Right. I agree. Agree. So, Peter, what's next for you? Is the, is the dust settled enough to answer that question? Well, I need a, I'm in desperate need of a vacation. Uh, and I'm going to start <laughs> on my, my children's book pretty soon. Uh, so I started the national, so I'm writing a, a children's book about the, the life of uh, uh, the young Socrates. It's set in a mythical time. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I started the National Progress Alliance. So I'm going to fight back against the ideology, the censoriousness and the liberalism. And yep. Um, I, I would love to get back to the gym to do jujitsu. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, immunocompromised. I have Crohn's disease. So I've been, I've been, uh, sheltered away a lot and it's been, it's been a tough year for me. And then given, given my, uh, my, my immuno and I'm on immunosuppressants too, which is I'm sure not, not helping anything. Um, so I'd just like to really take some time to um, get back to my health a little bit and eat right. Like I haven't with time and that's, I do intermittent fasting, but it's two 30, you know, I've been working since like 6am today and I just work around the clock. I've been doing that for a long time and I just need a vacation and just like to live with my, my, uh, my new nonprofit for a while in my book. So that's, that's what's next. And you know, the freedom that I feel is wonderful now. The, the freedom and just, I'm just enjoying the fact that I don't have to, that I just, I just, I just don't have to contribute to a culture that's just toxic. Right. I bet that's very relieving. Oh God. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's pretty good. So every once in a while, I'm just, I'm just walking around and I just start noticing myself humming or skipping or something. Yeah. It's, it's a, I good, love hearing a that. good feeling. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love hearing that. Well, if there's anything we can do to help your your new center, and uh, of course, when your next book comes out, let us know. And, and oh, I'm really going to advise people strongly to get How to Have Impossible Conversations. It's just so well written, and it's, I think, more needed than ever. But um, if there's ever a way to work together, I'm, I'm count me in because um, I think we're, 
I think we're all we're all in something together. I don't know what it is yet, but um, yeah, I, I I think we're we're in a um, I think that we're um, I think that we're people who value cognitive liberty, and I think that we're people who who also value forthright speech and honesty in our communications. And I think that's the thing we're doing. Agreed. Well, Peter, thank you for your time today. And just, I need you to know, I really admire the step you just took. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that, Chris. Thank you very much.